Uh, we're going to continue to worship the Lord uh, by spending some time in his word. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open it up to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. And we'll be looking at verses 20 uh, through 25. You'll notice that there is a verse that's omitted. Uh, it skips from 25 to 27. You should see a little note at the bottom. And uh, some of the earlier manuscripts don't have it, but in case you're interested in what it was, but if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your trespasses. And so some later manuscripts had that there, but some of the earlier ones did not. This is God's word. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass and it will be done for. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Let's pray. Our Father, our God, our King, thank you for your word. It is sweet. It is sometimes hard and challenging and convicting. At other times, you encourage us. Father, you know what your people need in this moment. I pray by your spirit that you would speak through your servant. And even as Jesus has taught us to pray this morning that Father, I pray and ask for forgiveness, that you would indeed blot out my own sin, that they might not be a hindrance for your people. Thank you, Lord, that we have the yes and amen to these prayers because of the righteous one who is at your right hand. We pray that his spirit will be at work in our midst during our time together in your word. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, today we're going to finish up Mark uh, until January, and we're going to look at this same tree. And the case that I made to you last week is that Jesus uses this same fig tree to teach two different lessons. Last week, uh, the lesson was around the temple. The fig tree had leaves on it, and Jesus assumed that there would be fruit on it, but as he drew near to it, there was none, so he cursed it. And I made the case to you last week that that was a picture of what was about to happen when he walked into the temple. The temple would have been, been this beautiful edifice, one of the most beautiful sites in Jerusalem, and it would have given those onlookers this appearance that there was fruit in it. But when Jesus drew near to it, there was none. And so you see Jesus overturning tables and telling people to stop going in. It, it, it was a picture now, today, he comes back to the same tree, and I want to make the case that he's teaching us a different lesson. It's about prayer. And here's the big idea. Here's what I hope to flush out during our time this morning, that prayer is, is, is an important discipline, but in reality, it's difficult, 
And when we neglect it, it's dangerous. We need Jesus to not just give us access to the throne of grace, but to help this discipline become a delight. Now, I'll flush this out in our points, but the first thing I want us to see in the passage is that prayer is an important spiritual discipline. Now, just to set the scene up, I want you to think about what's happening This is now day three of Holy Week. Day one, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the colt. He went into the temple, looked around, and the text says he walked back out, back to Bethany. Day two, he came back into Jerusalem, saw the fig tree, cursed the fig tree, went into the temple, and then turned back around and walked back out. This is now day three. He's taking the same road back into Jerusalem, and there we see the tree that he cursed on day two. And when Peter sees it, Peter says, Rabbi, teacher, look, the tree that you cursed, it's withered to the root. And that would have been a a really important observation because this is not a tree fungus. This is not sort of this slow sort of death of the tree. Peter sees it, and it's like, bro, it's like the next day, and the tree is withered down to the root, and it's a picture, right? It's a picture that it's done. It's over with. It's not going to live again, and we think that Jesus is also talking about the temple because in, a, in, in several years after this incident, that temple would indeed be done and never built up again. But then Peter, uh, Jesus flips it. They see what Jesus has just done with his mighty words. And Peter says, Rabbi. And then Jesus says, whoever says to this mountain, be thrown into the sea. Trust God. Believe this. And it will happen. And we got to wrestle with what's going on there. We think that Jesus might be talking about the temple yet again because the temple was on a mountain, a man-made mount that it sat upon. And in Jewish culture, for something to be thrown into the sea, it was a sign of judgment. And so it could be that Jesus is sort of this double message going on. On the one hand, he is sort of prophesying what's going to happen that because of what he has just done, this temple has literally been judged. But it's more than that. There's some hyperbole going on there, right? He actually says, it's not just me. He says, whoever says to this mountain, be thrown into the sea, trust God and it will happen. Now, notice that that, that in the way that Mark writes it, it actually says, Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt that what he says will come to pass. And look at that last phrase, it will be done for him. And in the Greek, that's a passive or a middle. And here's what it means. It means that there is no power in your words telling the mountain to move. That the way it's written, that, that there's some communication going on but it will be done. It's as if Jesus is saying, we're speaking, but we're not the one making it happen. Someone else is making it move. Someone else is making it happen. And I think that's another clue that it's about prayer. 
Now, Jesus explicitly talks about prayer in this passage. Just go down a few verses. Look at, look at what he says right there in verse 24. Therefore, and the therefore is connected with what he says in verse 22 and 23. I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it. Verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, in other words, what Jesus is doing is using what just happened with this fig tree and his own words to it. He's using that as a springboard, as a diving board to teach the disciples about prayer. Now, this isn't something new Jesus is kind of pulling out of his back pocket. That when you read the Bible, that you, you, you have to walk away with it that God's people are people of prayer. Whether you're talking about Nehemiah, who's praying for the city, who's praying before he goes before the king, whether you're talking about Ezra, who prays, you're talking about Leah or Rachel, who pray, or Mary, her Magnificat, she's praying, or the Psalms, 150 prayers right there in the Bible, for us to model our prayers after? Or what about Paul who says, I thank my God at every moment in my prayers upon remembrance of you? What about Paul who says, rejoice always, who also says, be in prayer all the time? Or what about Paul in 1 Thessalonians? He says, pray without ceasing. Or what about Paul in Philippians who says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. Or what about Jesus himself in Mark chapter 1, after he's done miracle after miracle after miracle, even into the night, Mark actually says that when it was still dark, Jesus got out and went to pray. Or what about when he fed the five thousands that he gave a blessing and then he did the miracle? Or what about when he fed the four thousand, he gave the blessing and did the miracle? Or what about when he walked on water, he sent the disciples over to the other side so that he could go up on a mountain to pray? Or what about in Mark 13 and 14 when Jesus is going to the cross that, that he's calling out to the Father in prayer that here is what the Bible will say that those who worship the one true God will be people of prayer. And Jesus is teaching that to his disciples right here. Now, that's a mark of a believer, is that our hearts want to commune with our God, that he's like home base, that coming back to him over and over and over and over again. But that is something that saints in the Old Testament, New Testament, even Jesus himself was a man of prayer. And that's why, if you're like me, the moment we talk about prayer, there's a little guilt, maybe a little shame. And I want to make the case that beneath the guilt and beneath the shame, because maybe our prayer lives don't look like they ought to, the guilt and the shame is there because the desire is. The desire is there. 
And we know what it feels like when we neglect it. And we know what it feels like when in the midst of the world and the trauma of our own souls and our needs and longings, we also know what it's like to close a door and to get along with God and to feel sweet communion with him. That it's, it's unexplainable and we can't put it fully in words. But I think what Jesus is saying is that, that this is an important discipline. So how's your prayer life? The next thing I want us to think about in the passage, and it's not in the passage, but I think pastorally that we at least have to acknowledge a reality that this discipline is difficult. And I want to I want to I want to entertain that. I also want to entertain this idea that the lack thereof is also dangerous. So the, I want to look at the difficulty of the discipline and the dangers of neglect. J.I. Packer uh, has a book on prayer, and he co-authored it. Um, I think her name is Nystrom, Kathleen, maybe. Here's his quote, and this is J.I. Packer, like the knowing God J.I. Packer, right? This is what he writes. We all need to pray, and we know it. We're told to pray, and we don't argue against doing so. In our hearts, we want to pray if we're truly born again and we find in ourselves what we can only call an instinct to go to the Father for help, for protection, for comfort, for encouragement, much as a child goes to their parents. Nor do any of us doubt that we are impoverished in all sorts of ways when we don't pray, yet deep down inside, we all know that prayer isn't easy. It's not as easy as others may seem to make it or as easy as we ourselves had hoped it would be. Now, this is J.I. Packer acknowledging two different things. It's difficult. And there are dangers there when we neglect it. Now, for this time being, as long as we are on this side of eternity with the old body of death that's waging war against the spirit, that prayer, like every single thing God calls us to do, is going to be met with opposition and difficulty. And there's coming a day when it won't be when your native language will be communion with the Father, when that longing will be there and you won't have to put a reminder in your phone and you won't have to worry about being distracted, that there is coming a day. But until then, in this body right here on this earth, it's going to be difficult. Now, here are some reasons that I came up with. One, don't we get tired? Who of you, and this is just me, I'm praying, and it's like late at night, and I'm kind of halfway between being alert and like being in dream world, and I kind of catch myself, 
And I, I, I was really praying, like, Lord, I was praying. I, I really started well. And before I know it, it's, I'm just somewhere else. Makes it hard. Or the distractions. And sometimes they're external. Sometimes you're praying and there's a knock on the door. Or a ping from your phone. Or a kid who is crying. And this was your carved out time to commune. And it's interrupted. And other times it's not external, right? It's not someone else imposing themselves on your time. Sometimes it's internal, right? You're praying and the grocery list is just plastered right to your head. And you're like, where did you come from? I'm not supposed to be thinking about you right now. I will do this later at four o'clock and somehow at 12 o'clock, the avocados come to your mind because they're not on the list, right? Or maybe you're like me, you're praying and you remember your fantasy football team isn't in order. You got somebody starting who doesn't have a game. And at the most inopportune time, this is when you're going to come to my mind when I'm praying? Or maybe you're in Bible study. And you've been a Christian maybe two, three years. And you're in a Bible study with a saint who's been walking with the Lord for 30 and when you pray your little prayer, and then you hear like the boss lady pray, and her, her command of scripture is impeccable, her trust in Jesus is unshakable, the pauses in her prayers are not a distraction. There are no idiosyncrasies sort of in her prayer. And all of a sudden, you're comparing your prayer life to her prayer life and what you do. Here's what you do. I'm, I'm like a little turtle. I'm just not going to pray in Bible study anymore because I don't sound like her or him. And all of a sudden, we're forgetting that there's growth in grace that we're growing in this. And all of a sudden, we start to think that the only way God hears my prayer is if it's a full-grown, I've been walking with Jesus, 50-year-sounding type of prayer. And it makes us discouraged. Or what about if we're, if we're hurried and you missed your time to pray this morning? Does prayer in a car with my eyes open, does that kind of count? Do I stand up like Jesus says when you stand praying? Do I fall on my knees? Do I sit in my chair? Does this count if I'm praying on my pillow, laying on my side? These are all questions, right, that bombard our minds and we're wrestling with, is this acceptable in the sight of the Lord? And we live in a Facebook, FaceTime, Skype, Zoom culture where we don't want to just hear who we're talking to. I want to see your face. And that makes prayer, what we do, seems outdated and archaic. I haven't seen the face of Jesus, right? 
And now all of a sudden, because of modern advancements, this thing that is precious and beautiful that saints have been practicing forever, it feels kind of a little outdated. And how long should I pray? How frequent should I pray? Should I use the prayers of dead people to help me to help guide it? Should I use the axe model? Should I adore and confess and give thanksgiving and then make supplications? Like if we're really, really honest, then I think all of that gets in there and it just makes it really hard. And I love what Jackie Hill Perry says about this. Our busy schedules aren't keeping us from prayer. Our busy hearts are. I've learned personally that I do not need to hear another sermon on prayer or read another book on prayer or learn a new style of praying or set a new time to pray for me to have a better prayer life. My ultimate problem isn't a lack of information, it's pride. My pride makes me prayerless because it deceives me and tells me that I will be just fine without it. I think that's me. And when we look at Scripture, we start to see that the neglect of this discipline is just dangerous. James says you have not because you ask not. He's talking to a people who they're lacking. And James is saying, hey, one of the reasons you're lacking is because you're lacking in your prayer life. Like something is missing. You have not because you're not asking. You are not bringing yourself and your heart before your God in heaven. Or what about the horrible decisions we can make without prayer? Joshua chapter 9. Joshua and, and Israel, they've defeated uh, Jericho and Ai, and, and they are marching on, about to go into the promised land. And then there's this country, the, the, the Gibeonites, and, and they're smart, right? So here's what they do. They're next on the list to be destroyed, but they got whiff of everything the Lord was doing through Joshua. And so they came up with a plan. Here's the plan. We're going to go to them and we're going to tell them we're from a distant country. And we're going to tell them we come in peace, make a covenant with us. Now, them jokers came from right next door, but they told Joshua and them they came from all the way far away. And Joshua says, hey, well, how do we know you're not deceiving us? And they pulled out some bread. They said, hey, look, our bread is crumbly and old. When we left our land, it was warm and hot. And look at our clothing. Our clothing, when we left our land, it was impeccable. But look at it now. It's tattered and it's, 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 it's dirty. It's filthy. And you know what the text says? Because they did not consult with the Lord, they made a covenant with people that they were supposed to destroy. You ever had that happen in your life? Where prayerlessness, relying on your own strength, your own wisdom, your own knowledge, your own power, left you deceived? What do we do to our own souls when we neglect prayer? We afflict it 
and we hurt it and we harm it. We're about to sing a song. What a friend we have in Jesus. And one of the lines in the song is what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to our God in prayer. That hymn was written by a man by the name of Joseph Scriven. He thought he would be in the military like his father, but his health diminished and he was unfit to serve. And so he moved from Ireland to Canada to settle in the new world. He met a woman and the night before their wedding, she drowned. He got engaged again years later, and weeks before the wedding, his fiancée died of pneumonia. What you're reading when you sing that hymn is a man who carried all of that suffering and loneliness and hardship alone until he discovered I can take this to Jesus. I can take this to God. I don't have to bear this alone. But before he took that and learned that, he's giving us a picture. Isn't that what David said in Psalm 32? That when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day and all night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength dried up. David is giving us a picture of what prayerlessness does to the soul. It afflicts our own soul in a world in which we're already being afflicted. I know it's difficult. And the scriptures will also say the lack thereof. It's dangerous. Here's our last point. How does prayer move from this difficult discipline? How do we get on this path where it starts to become a delight? Now, I'm not going to give you four points that will make your prayer life on fire today, right? I'm not going to deceive you like that because that ain't how it works, right? (laughs) But I do think Jesus is trying to be a rabbi and to be a teacher who knows our frame, who remembers our weakness, and he's saying, little children, let me help you. We don't need Jesus simply to save us. A part of being a believer is needing the gospel for every aspect of our lives. That Jesus has put his spirit inside of you that longs to commune, that is willing. And what Jesus is doing in the passage is giving us a frame for things to at least think about to spur us on in our prayer life. 
And so my last point is our rabbi who helps this discipline become a delight. Did you notice what Peter calls Jesus in the passage? Look at what he says. He actually says, Rabbi, look, this is Peter only calls Jesus rabbi twice in Mark's gospel. The first time is on the mountain of transfiguration when Peter beholds the glory of Christ and he calls him rabbi. And it's right here in this passage. In other words, Peter sees something in what Jesus has just done the day before and the fruit thereof. And he's screaming, rabbi, rabbi, teacher, teacher. And here is the good news. Jesus is willing to be your teacher. As a matter of fact, he regularly teaches the disciples how to pray. In Luke chapter 11, they come to him and they say, Rabbi, teacher, teach us to pray as John the Baptist taught his disciples. And you know what Jesus does? He says, I will. And he gives us the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew chapter 6, he says, when you go pray, don't pray like the hypocrites. They do all of their praying in public so that people will see them. I tell you, they already have their reward. But when you go pray, don't make a public scene with your praying. You go into your closet and you close the door and your father who is in heaven, he sees and he hears. And when you pray, don't pray like the Gentiles. They think because of their eloquence and big vocabulary and the number of words they pray, they think that the basis of their prayers being heard is their eloquence. But when you pray, you pray this 52-word prayer that is nothing like the prayer that they're praying out there. Or in, also in Luke, Luke chapter 18, he gives the parable of two people who went to the temple to pray, and one was a tax collector. Father, I thank you that I'm not like them. I do this, I do this, I do this, I do this. And then there was a tax collector. It says he would not even look to the heavens. He beat his chest, and all he said was, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, which prayer was heard? It was this man right here who pled for mercy. In other words, Jesus makes it a habit in his ministry as a rabbi to teach his disciples how to pray. Isn't that the essence of what it means to be a rabbi? To impart not just your knowledge, but your lifestyle upon your followers. And that's what Jesus is doing. You see, we're in day three of Holy Week. In a few more days, their world is about to be rocked. For three years, they've walked with Jesus. For three years, as certain as you can see me, they could see Jesus. For three years, as certain as you can touch the seat that you're sitting on, they could reach out and touch Jesus. And then he's going to go to a cross. And he's going to be snatched away from them. 
and then he's going to go into a ground, and then he's going to be raised, and then he's going to be around them for 40 more days, and then he's going to ascend to heaven, and all of a sudden, the disconnect happens. All of a sudden, these men who have walked with him for year after year after year, who could just reach out and touch him, now all of a sudden, you can't see him. He's at the right hand of the Father in power, in glory, hidden. And it would have created this disconnect. Jesus, how do we commune with God? We had you right here in our midst. How do we go on? And Jesus, being the good rabbi, is giving them a final lesson on prayer. You do have me. You do have the Father. I am not far away. You can still talk. You can still learn, but it's going to be through prayer. And so what are the four things that Jesus is putting before them to spur them on in prayer? And the first thing is they have God as Father. Father. Now, you notice how this passage is bookended, where Jesus says, have faith in God. And then at the bottom, did you notice what he says? Right there in verse 25, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also in heaven may forgive you. In other words, God is going to become their father. And that is so important for our prayer life. Tim Keller, in a sermon he preached, I think it was in 1995, and he calls this the basis of our prayer. He gives this analogy. He says, hey, whenever we approach anyone for an exchange, an interaction, or anything, there is always a basis for that approach, and the basis determines the level of exchange. And he gives us an example. In New York, people approach one another for directions. And it's allowed on the basis of common humanity. And you remember what it's like to be lost in a big city. And on that basis of our common humanity and our awareness of what it's like to be lost, because that's the basis, most will stop and will give directions. But Keller goes on to say that that's a thin basis that doesn't move beyond that. He says, suppose that same person who asked me for directions were to say, hey, can I borrow your wallet? Can I borrow your phone? Can I borrow your debit card? Can you tell me your address? Can I borrow your wife? Keller says, he can't do that because the basis is not thick enough. He says, however, if it's my son or my daughter who's lost, will I not do more than just give them directions? Will I stop what I'm doing to go get them and get them there? If it's my son or daughter who asks for the keys to my car, will I not willingly give it to him? 
if it's my son who is sick in Colorado and he says, dad, can you send your wife? Of course, I'm going to put my wife on a plane and send my wife to him in Colorado. And it's on the basis of what? You're not asking me these things on the basis of a stranger who's lost in New York. The basis is we're family. When you pray, how do you view God? As a stranger who you're reaching out to for help? Or do you view him as your father? That changes everything. If you approach him thinly, then you will not draw near to your father. But if you understand the beauty of the gospel, that the father sent his one and only son who enjoyed intimate communion with him forever, And when that son who was at his right hand for eternity then came to earth and was clothed in humanity, there was a gap between where Jesus used to be and where he was on the earth. And what you see that son doing in his earthly life was continuing to do what he had always known, and that was communing with the Father. So much so that in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus does miracles, Jesus withdraws from the crowd to go commune with his father. When Jesus has done miracles, he withdraws to the mountain to commune with his father. As a matter of fact, this is what should blow your mind, that when Jesus was on a cross, do you know he died as a praying man? That he is bearing the guilt of the father, our guilt and the wrath of God. And do you remember that what Jesus was saying? While he is bearing the wrath of God, he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's probably the last thing that's coming out of my mouth as I die on the cross. And here is what you see your Savior doing. From the beginning of his life, he was a man of prayer. Until he breathed his final breath, he was still crying out to God. Why does that matter? Because all the prayerfulness that God desires, he's gotten that from one person. And, it's not, and they're not in this room right now. He's at his right hand. And all the wrath for prayerlessness has been put on another. And he too is at the right hand of the Father. And because the Father has accepted you as perfectly righteous, and because the Father has taken away your guilt, By pouring it out on the sun, you do know that he now looks at you not with wrath, not 
with vengeance. He's given you the basis that will change our prayer lives. He is now your father. And he says, come to me. I want to hear from you. I'm not disappointed with you. It excites me to hear the voices of my people ascending to my throne. I miss you and I desire you. Jesus says this is the basis. The second thing he teaches us about prayer is that it is a formidable weapon. So first, we have to remember God as Father as the basis. But the second thing is that prayer is a formidable weapon. I love what R.T. France says about this passage. It is Jesus's powerful word which has destroyed the tree. And the following verses will take up the theme of God's power operating dramatically through the words of humans. That Peter says, Rabbi, look, look at the tree, look at the tree. It's withered. And Archie Friend says, wait a minute, Peter. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's actually saying he's not the only one with that kind of power. He says, when you pray, saint, son of God, it's powerful. And the power isn't in you, but it moves the most powerful one to act. That's why he's saying, and when you see the image of throw the mountain into the sea, it's part hyperbole, but I think we got to hear it, that, that, that there are times in life where these things will feel insurmountable. They will feel gargantuan. They will feel larger than life. And here is what Jesus is saying. As we pray, those things can be moved. And I think we need to hear that. I think Jesus is encouraging us to not be afraid to bring big, bold, scripturally saturated prayer requests before our God and Father. He's actually encouraging us to come, to draw near. And I think in our circles, we forget that. We so want to react against the health and wealth and the name it, claim it, right, movement that we actually forget that Jesus is inviting us to ask God for big things, big things according to his word. How many of y'all got some big prayer requests that God didn't answer? Some of y'all had a marriage that was falling apart and it was in shambles. And you prayed, and the Lord worked. And some of y'all have had sicknesses and illnesses that show up at the doctor's office. And you go back three months later, and it's not there. Some of y'all have prayed for that wayward child and you've worried about their heart, their soul, their salvation, and you have bathed them in prayer, and you see the other side where your God and your king, he hears and he answers. I'm standing here right now 
Because some of these women in this building pray for me. I ain't always been a preacher. And I can remember the lowest point in my life. I didn't want God. I didn't want anything to do with God. Would not open my Bible, would not go to church. And this happened for five years straight. And then my mom messed up and linked up with some ladies who was at this church. And y'all started praying. Y'all started praying. And I arbitrarily picked up a Bible and read Ephesians and read Galatians and fell to my knees in my apartment. And I wasn't special. That was y'all bringing big prayers before the throne. And I can remember being a baby Christian and wanting a wife and being discipled by men in the church and wanting to be married, wanting to honor the Lord. And I can remember praying in January 13th at 3.44 a.m. in the morning, the Lord says, Karen is your wife. I hadn't seen her for three years, hadn't talked to her in three years. And all I've been praying for eight months was, Lord, I don't know who she is. Make her love you. Be removing whoever or whatever is in her life that is a distraction to you. Have her be a part of a church. Have her being poured into by other saints. And at 3.44, I woke up and I sent an email that was three years old and I married her. You can't convince me that God is not a God who can do big things. And so I'm asking you this question. What is it right now that you desire God to do that is in accordance with the scriptures. Do you believe that he can do it? Do you believe? Because that moves right, up, right into what Jesus says after this. He says, have faith in God. He says, ask these things and do not doubt, but believe and it will be given to you. And I know we hear that and we want to react so much so against kind of the health and wealth movement. But I do think we have to have this capacity to ask big, scriptural, bold prayers. And here is what else Jesus is saying. Have faith. And our faith is not in the outcome. Our faith is in our God. You know, Jesus asked God for something big once. He asked his father that the cup of suffering might be removed from him. And he cried out over and over and over again, if there is another way. And you know what his father told him? There's no other way. 
And you know what Jesus says when he heard that? He says, not my will, but yours, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Why is that a big deal? Because you see Jesus as, a, as our God and King wrestling in prayer to bring these things before him. And here's the thing. He trusted God because he would often say, I'm going to be crucified and on the third day I will be raised. And so Jesus, even in the crux of the crucifixion, is wrestling and yet his faith in God, not in the necessary outcome, sustained him. God is calling us to trust and to believe. And then the fourth thing and the final thing he, he tacks on here, forgiveness. So it's four, four Fs. God is your father. Prayer is a formidable weapon. The other F is faith. And the final one that Jesus says is Forgiveness. That's dealing with the attitude, how we approach God in prayer. We're not approaching him as if we're perfect. We come before a holy and righteous God day in and day out needing mercy. We never outgrow the gospel. We never outgrow the cross and so we come as people acknowledging our guilt and acknowledging our own sin, and we're pleading to him for mercy, and he gives it. But then Jesus ups the ante. We're not coming just as those who need mercy and grace. We actually come rightly in prayer when we're the same people who give that to others. That's the attitude. We're coming as those who need mercy, need grace, need forgiveness, and we come ready to give it to those that have sinned against us. My prayer is that Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, would use what we have talked through this morning to help us all, to nudge us a little further and being prayerful people. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we bless you and we love you. And we pray that you, by your spirit, would make us men, women, and children who delight in prayer. Father, would you silence the accuser of the brothers who brings charges against us. Would you allow us to marvel in the finished work of Jesus and give us faith, God, to see the access that we now have to you as a father? Would you cause us to be those types of people, God, who cherish you, who love you, who long for you? Would you do this for your glory and your honor? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.